Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Um, some of you have been around for a while, probably realized by now that I've got a couple of really uh, favorite authors who write epic stories. One of them is C.S. Lewis with his Chronicles of Narnia, and the other is J.R. Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And um, so I'm sorry I keep going back to those images, but they were Christian writers who uh, were together in a group called the Inklings in Oxford. And so their epic stories really have this kind of underlying foundation of our story in God, of God's story with us. And there are these themes that uh, go through those that we can look at and recognize Christian themes in them. And this last week um, uh, on Facebook, I think, I think that's another place where I seem to get these things, um, there was this quote from the first book on, in the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings called The Fellowship of the Rings. And those of you who don't know the story, um, there's a group of hobbits and hobbits are a people who live in the Shire and they're small people and they're bucolic. They're very peaceful, uh, peaceable people. They, they don't know how to fight with each other. I mean, they get on each other's nerves, but they don't take up arms against each other. And there's this beautiful kind of Shire rolling English countryside kind of place where they live. Of course, the authors are English, so that's why it looks like that. And, um, and so, but the Fellowship of the Ring begins by Gandalf the Grey, the wizard, coming once again into the Shire where the hobbits live. Because evil is coming out of Mordor in Middle-earth, and evil is getting stronger and stronger. And there's something to do with a ring that um, Bilbo, a relative, had previously taken and has in his possession. And so because of his purity of heart, Frodo has been identified to lead a band, and he is the one who is to take the ring uh, because the power of the ring is for evil, when the evil one and the ring are reunited. And so Frodo has to go and destroy the ring in the mountain of doom, all of these wonderful images. And so there's this knowledge that evil is growing and darkness is spreading over Middle Earth. And Frodo is trying to avoid being the one who needs to be the head of this crew that have to destroy the ring. And he turns to Gandalf and he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All they have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. All we have to do is to decide what to do with the time that is given us. Now, if you'd read the books, 
you know the end of the story. Spoiler alert. They win. <laughs> Good overcomes evil. But even if you've read the books, if like me, the actual nuances and clarity of how they win uh, might not be so clear to you when you go and see the movie. So you go and see the movie and you know the end of the story, but even so, just being caught up in the movie, you're, you're on the edge of your seat at every single battle that they go into. And then when one of them dies in battle, you grieve with this group, with this band who are going on. And yet, even though the darkness seems so great, after all the darkness, Frodo and his heroic band triumph and Middle-earth's true king, who has been with them incognito all of the time, he is revealed as the true king and returns to reign. In a similar way, the book of Revelation does that for us. It tells us the end of our story but it's the beginning of the next one. And it's not clear in Revelation. We don't get all of the clarity about how that exactly happens, although there are some authors out there who would like to tell you that it does, but don't listen to them because God's words in visions here. It's in apocalyptic visions. But the vision is telling us that the Lamb is victorious is right now victorious. We know the end of the story. Though the darkness seems oh so strong, God is the ruler yet, and that's what Revelation is telling us. The Lamb has conquered. The Lamb is victorious. And ultimate victory of our King, Jesus, has been won. See, John is caught up in this vision. He's caught up in the very throne room of God. And in this vision, he, of course, is thinking also of those people to whom he's going to be writing, for whom he's going to be writing this revelation down. The Christians in the time of John who are undergoing persecution, great suffering, torture, trial, and death in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum. Evil is extending throughout the known world at that point in time. Darkness is beginning to cover the land. And this is written to them. We know the end of the story. The lamb is triumphant. The king returns. And darkness is overcome. And so there's this image that he has of all of these people, this multitude upon multitude, clothed in white. And there's this this exchange, this conversation that goes on with one of the elders who asks him, who is it? No, you know who it is. These are they who have come out of the great trial and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. This is the paradox Blood is really difficult to get out of white clothing. It stains. But this blood makes dirty clothing white. 
pure, pure white. Because this blood is pure. It's the blood of the Lamb who died for us. And when our dirty, sin-filled rags are clothed, are washed in the Lamb's blood, they're made white, pure white, white as snow. Those who follow the Lamb, even though they will go through suffering, Ultimately, the victory is theirs because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They will find themselves with John in his vision. They will find themselves in the very throne room of God. These are those who have come out of the great suffering, alive, truly alive in the truest reality of of all, in God's very presence. They fully know God. And you'll remember in their echoes of the prophet Isaiah who said, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. For you see, this vision... Although John is is taking it in and he's writing it down, he's writing it down not just for Ephesus, not just for the Christians in Pergamum, not just for the Christians in Smyrna, but for us also who live in the in-between time. In the time between Christ's first coming, when God took on our very humanity and walked amongst us, from that time to the time when he returns fully as king, he is already that. But we're living in the time in between. And though we know the end of the story, there are battles yet to be fought in the presence even though there are times now when we hear of Ebola, when we hear of ISIS, when we hear of the torture and the rape of young girls, when it seems like all we hear is darkness and evil, the Lamb still is the conqueror. And we are called to make the choice right now to be the light, to be the questers, to be the followers of Jesus into that darkness. We might be with Frodo. We might want to say, I wish it had not happened in my time. But we don't get to choose the time in which we live. We do get to choose what to do with the time that is given us. We can choose to live a kingdom life, a kingdom of God life, a Holy Spirit-led life in the face of adversity, in the face of what looks like overwhelming evil because we know the end of the story. We know that the Lamb is victorious and all of those who belong to the Lamb are rescued. God 
shelters them. He wipes away every tear from the eye and amazingly the lamb becomes the shepherd of the 23rd Psalm who guides them to springs of the water of life. It's not just about enduring this present age until the age to come, until Christ returns and fully enters into the kingship that is already his. It's about engaging and fully engaging in the battle now. It's about living life now because whatever we do, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, for God's kingdom work now, when the new heaven and the new earth come, that will not be lost. It will be part of what is the new creation. Because later on in Revelation, we hear that there will be a new heaven, our dimension, at God's dimension, where God lives. Heaven is the dimension that God lives. It's not up there past Jupiter or Saturn. It's God's dimension. It's where God already reigns and already rules. We live in Earth's dimension. But God's dimension has intersected our dimension when Christ came. When Jesus when God himself took on flesh as Jesus Christ, heaven's realm is already intersected into, into earth's reign. Heaven's reign is already here. And it's here in each and every one of us because God resides in us. His Holy Spirit has come. And so heaven's realm, heaven's dimension, has already intersected, but not as fully as it will do, when, according to Revelation, the end of the story comes and heaven's realm, heaven's dimension and earth's dimension are knit together as one. And there's a new heaven-earth dimension where there is no more sin, there is no more suffering, there is no more death, there is no more pain. It's the end of our current story, but it's the beginning of a whole new story. And the saints who have gone before will be raised in resurrected bodies and those who are living still will receive their resurrected body. You see, that's what, that's what Revelation is about in one of the verses we didn't sing. And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long steals on the ear the distant triumph song. And hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Alleluia. When the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song. See, we know the triumph song. The Lamb is victorious. And we are now to live a Sermon on the Mount-shaped life. A beatitude-shaped life. It's about fully engaging now. 
in that kind of life, in the face of a world that does not value what God values because the Beatitudes are about an upside-down life. But that's our life. It's an upside-down life. Living a kingdom life means that what the world thinks is right is put the right, the right side up. It's God's way of looking at things, not the world's way of looking at things. It means that the meek inherit the earth, not the strong. Those who mourn are comforted by God himself. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled, not derided. The merciful are not pilloried, but rather receive mercy. And the pure in heart see God. That's the reality of God's realm. And we're to live the lives of a people who, because of Christ, have now been made children of God, sanctified people. Not because we have white robes of our own, but because of the blood of the Lamb, we've been made saints. We're all saints of God. You know, Paul addresses all of the Christian communities to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Smyrna, to the saints at Colossae. He's not saying anything to them that he would not say to us, to the saints at Good Shepherd Maitland. Leon Blois, a uh, a French spiritual writer, said this, there's only one real sadness in life, not to become a saint not to be the person Christ wants us to be. Because a saint is a friend of Christ, one who allows Jesus to live his life through him. That's what a saint is. Just allowing Jesus to live his life through us. And that doesn't mean giving up our personality. Uh, All of these saints had their own personalities. We know Paul had a very strong personality. He didn't give up his personality, but he knew he was filled with Jesus, that he'd given his life over to Jesus. And so in that, we're all saints, the saints who have gone before, ordinary people. You know, we don't need to be thinking of the saints (coughs) as these people who did amazing things for God. Many of them did. Many of them went about being saints in small and quiet ways. And many today still do that. I know many of you who are saints who go about in quiet ways. There's this poem called The Last Beatitude. And blessed are the ones we overlook, the faithful servants on the coffee rotor, the ones who hold no candle, bell, or book, but keep the books and tally up the quota, the gentle souls who come to do the flowers, the quiet ones who organize the fate, church sitters who give up their weekday hours, doorkeepers who may open heaven's gate. God knows the depths that often go unspoken amongst the shy, the quiet, and the kind, or the slow healing of a heart long broken, placing each flower so for a year's mind, invisible on earth without a voice, in heaven their angels' glory.
and rejoice. We knit together with all those who have gone before, all of the saints past and present, and they with us have persevered in their faith. Though the darkness seems to be overcoming, there is one who has overcome all. The Lamb is still victorious. And by choosing to follow Jesus, we've stepped into a glorious adventure. Not a safe one, by any means. And there will be times when we wish with Frodo that all that is happening had not happened in our time. But as Jesus' followers were called to live a Jesus-shaped life in the knowledge that our lives are joined through Christ with all the Jesus' followers, all the saints who have gone before and who are now in his nearer presence and with them, at the end of this story, we will inherit a new heaven-earth, a new heaven-earth realm in a new body for a new adventure without evil, sin, suffering, and death. Thanks be to the Lamb who is victorious and who reigns. Amen.